Hello, welcome to the second episode of the 21cc podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. 21cc is short for 21st Century Construction, and since we're just a quarter of the way through the century, we'll be looking ahead to the challenges the industry faces, such as quality and safety, sustainability and skills. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. In this episode, we hear from Sandy Rees-Jones, the new president of the CIOB. She kicked off her presidential year with an awkward question. Why can't we give women PPE that fits? It would be good to be on the front foot in the right boot <laughs> rather than on the back foot, you know, to, to take action before something serious happens. She has some interesting ideas for turning that industry blind spot into a surprising advantage. Also in this episode, our jargon buster tackles the ever-proliferating dimensions of BIM. If someone starts talking to you about BIM beyond 5D, challenge them politely on their definitions to make sure they match yours. And in a segment sponsored by Cohesive, we hear from David Philp, chair of the CIOB's Innovation Advisory Group, about the latest thinking on ESG. ESG is the acronym we use to mean boards taking responsibility for environment, social well-being and governance. I think it's very clear as well that this is really our last chance to enhance what we're doing. First, though, to help us understand our future, BIM Plus editor Justin Stanton takes us on a 44-year detour into the past to see just how much the famous 1979 Usborne Book of the Future got right about how we live today and what that means for tomorrow. Construction is the future. I don't mean that construction will be overwhelmingly popular at the cutting edge of the zeitgeist at some unspecified point in time to come. No, I mean that the very act of designing, building and maintaining the built environment enables the future to happen. Every second of our lives, construction is acting to make that future, our future, happen. And yet construction's relationship with future technology is problematic. As well as Star Wars, Tom Baker as Doctor Who and BBC One's weekly science and technology show Tomorrow's World, my relationship with the future was informed by a publishing sensation, a book first published in 1979 and recently republished after being out of print for decades. The book's cover depicts spaceships battling each other, but inside each spread contained much more grounded visions of the shape of things to come. The book? The Osborne Book of the Future. Across nearly 100 pages, it provided young minds with a glimpse into the future of humanity, how we would live, work, play and travel. Some of those young minds reading the book would have become engineers, architects or software designers, shaping what we build today and how we build it. One of the young readers of the original book was Tom Cheesewright, now an applied futurist, who has written the new editions forward. I spoke to him about the book's visions of the built environment and of construction's relationship with technology. Tom, which of the book's notable predictions came to pass and which didn't? I think if you look at the section on, I mean, Future Cities actually is a really interesting example. And you look at its portrayal of both the inside and outside of the home of the future. Um, you've got solar panels on the roof. You've got an EV outside. 
you've got wind turbines, you've got insulation, you've got, you know, all sorts of technologies that are incredibly familiar on the outside. And actually the picture of the inside doesn't look that different to reality either. There's a big screen TV, there's a computer in the background, um, there's someone watching, you know, sports on the sofa. Um, there are some things that it does, it does have wrong. I think its idea of email was rather too close to fax um, and still involved, you know, sort of physical copies going in and out. It was still bound to the the physical to physical media to the CD, and its version of the internet looks rather a lot like CFAX. But you know, given that they weren't talking about specifically what year that was, actually, you know, given the broad range of you know year two thousand twenty twenty, that's pretty good actually. You know, that's a pretty accurate representation. Um, some things that haven't come true. I think the 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 pace of advance into space was just starting to slow really well. It's been slowing for a few years when this book was written. Yeah. Uh, and then we went into an era, era, era where, suffice to say, you know, the, the Cold War was kind of over. The military pressure to continue to conquer space was gone. Uh, and maybe money was being, well, let's just say big government spending rather went out of fashion for a few years. But I think, yeah, the, the, its portrayal of, is going back to that cities thing, its portrayal of the potential for climate change, both positive and negative, was, was really prescient. You know, to be showing more than 40 years ago the choices that we had to make at that point, I think, was, was, was it, it shows the depth of research that went into the book. Futurologists are keen on stating that the future can be predicted, just not when it will happen. <laughs> I know you've said it yourself. Absolutely. Um, We've got robots that can print 3D buildings, robots that can lay bricks, print site plans, repair roads, AI that can control heavy site plant to make sure it doesn't collide with site teams. So what's your view of construction's relationship with technology and what might come next for those that work in construction? I think it's at times been a slightly, what's the word, reluctant relationship, certainly for parts of the construction industry. And yet it's one of the industries that's under the greatest pressure to modernise because of the challenges we have around skills, because of the challenges we have around profitability and sustainability, not just environmental sustainability, but actually the sustainability of many of the businesses in the construction sector. Very fine margins, you know, you're sometimes only one bad project away from going under. Uh, and technology ought to be able to address some of those issues. It ought to be able to improve margins. It ought to be able to make planning more robust. It ought to be able to augment some of the less physical labour involved in, in, the, in the supply chain, in the, in the production of new buildings and the, and the adaptation of old ones in, in a variety of different ways. And so you know, I look at some of the collaborative AI technologies and the potential role that they have as being very exciting here. Well, and we've already, you know, we've seen the use of generative design in this sector for quite some time now, but in, but in quite narrow ways. I think a much broader um, architectural co-pilot or quantitative co-pilot or even project planning co-pilot to pick up on previous mistakes, learn the lessons, advise, guide, automate the interactions would be incredibly powerful. And I think there's also an opportunity to leverage the technology to solve some of the more business process problems that this sector has. That lack of um, joined up thinking between the different stages, you know, the different classic stages of your of your of your building project, it, it, it still feels very disjointed so much of the time. And I think that there's so much cost, so much unshared risk, 
so many challenges that come out of that. So I think there's I think there's a number of opportunities, even before we get into the really sexy possibility of of robots and bionic people on the building site. In the last few weeks, we've had alarmist headlines about AI. Does that create some kind of dissonance or or, or further disruption delay to the to the industry's adoption, do you think? I think a lot of people in construction, and this is true of many other industries I work in as well, it's true in finance, it's true in professional services, it's true, surprisingly true in technology in a lot of times, a lot of times, people will read those headlines and use them uh, to, to buttress their own existing perspectives and use it to reinforce their rejection and their intolerance for some of these technologies. And what that does is two things. It makes the life of those people who see the benefits it can bring harder and it creates more opportunities for new entrants. And what the thing that surprised me in construction, particularly in the last few years, is that we haven't seen more new entrants who've looked at the scope of technologies available and the fundamental shifts in efficiency that they offer, um, who've looked at the the speed of adoption across the rest of the industry, not uniformly. There are some companies who've done some really interesting stuff in the last few years, but generally, and looked at the competitive landscape and said, you know what, we could hoover upload a venture capital because um, it's out there, um, people looking for people looking for returns, and we could build a very different form of construction firm, and we could do this leveraging these technologies. And, and, and the, the slower the industry and the existing players are to adopt these technologies, the more likely it is someone comes in with a big wadge of venture capital behind them and cho- chooses to do things very differently. And, and even if they don't succeed, it fundamentally disrupts the market. Returning to the book of the future, what's your favourite illustration? Yeah, the thing I find myself talking about a lot, and actually it's one of the most unlikely and impractical illustrations in the book, um, is the space elevator. I love this idea that actually we could have a permanent and less uh, carbon intensive connection to the rest of the, the solar system and ultimately the rest of the galaxy. And you know, the, the, the new book I'm working on, one of the new books I'm working on with Usborne, it's one of the things we focused on because I am a big believer that we ought to spread out into, into the solar system that I, you know, ideally we learn from some of the mistakes we've made on Earth before we take those mistakes with us. But actually, it's there to be explored. And so, yeah, the idea of a space elevator, which would look nothing like the one in the book, absolutely appeals. I think that's a, you know, if you were going to do another moonshot for humanity, a shared global goal to better connect us with the solar system, I think that would be a very good international project to focus on. That's a positive note to end on. Tom, thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Justin. I'm still waiting for my Jetson-style hoverbike, but hey-ho. Now, there's been much discussion about the barriers women face in getting into and thriving in the construction industry, including attitudes, harassment, and inflexible hours. But one of the most basic barriers is only now coming to the fore. PPE that fits. New CIOB President Sandy Rees-Jones has decided to tackle the problem head-on, and she told Christina Lago, deputy editor of Construction Management magazine, why. The new president of the Chartered Institute of Building is a woman on a mission. During her appointment as the 120th president of the institute earlier in the month, Sandy Rees-Jones said that she wants to make collaboration with the key theme of her presidency, 
and she's determined to use her platform to change the status quo of a sector known for being combative, adversarial and too keen to work in silos. Chris Jones began her career in construction as a journalist, working for various organisations before creating her own management and marketing business. In 1998, she was awarded an OBE for her work in promoting women in construction, a course she is still very passionate about. As the new president of the CIOB, she hasn't wasted any time, and she has already launched a trailblazing campaign that has the potential to create a lasting impact in the construction industry and create ripples across other sectors. PPE that fits. And for those of you who use social media, hashtag PPE that fits. But what's PPE that fits? Well, it's basically a campaign that wants exactly that. PPE that fits, regardless of your gender, shape or needs. Basically, PPE that is fit for purpose and that anyone can wear. Sandy, where did the idea of PPE that fits come from? I had an email, I think it was a LinkedIn message, from one of my contacts in my network, saying that she was incensed to discover that her daughter, who was doing a welding course, was one of two girls, women, young women, on the welding course and they were not equipped with the fireproofing kit until the course that fitted until the course was nearly finished. It was that particular incident and then of course I picked up from other people that they had the same issue. I certainly couldn't get the right kit. I mean I if I go and on site it's quite difficult. But of course this is not just about having comfortable and suitable PPE, right? It's more about health and safety and compliance, isn't it? Can you tell us a bit more about that, Sandy? If you're not properly equipped and you're halfway up a ladder or you're working on scaffolding or you're, you're manipulating something and you're wearing gloves that are too big, then it's a danger. And it's a danger not only to you, but it's to people who are working with you. So it's really important. And I think that if we look at gender, it also spreads into other, because not, not all men are the same size. I'm also minded of another little story. I tend to use examples a lot and anecdotes because I think we need the data but I think it's really powerful to say this is what somebody said and I remember uh, one of the women I met when I worked at Women's Education and Building when I was chairman and she said having succeeded in becoming recognised and valued as a site worker and a woman on the tools and then became a site agent I had a huge advantage as a woman because I would turn up on site and say, nobody's working there until you've got the tow boards on the scaffolding. Nobody's going up there unless there's a harness if they're doing tiling. And she said, I could do it because I had the experience. I was fearless now. I'd cracked it and I could say it. And it was easier for me to say that as a woman site agent than the poor young lad who just turned up and it was his second week on site and he didn't want to say, shouldn't I have some tow boards or shouldn't I have a harness? Because you can imagine the reaction. And that I thought also was a really powerful example of saying if you speak up with authority, you make the most of the difference. And if you have the ability to say, I have the authority 
like a senior HSE inspector I met who was very deceptive. She appeared at a conference and she was wearing the most wonderful floating outfit and was and she said, oh, she said, even if I'm off duty and I'm driving past a site and I see something that's not right, I just stop the car and I go in. And it's a surprise and it's authority and you make the most of it. So I think exploit the differences and that helps. That, that helps people. Lastly, Sandy, do you think the PPE that fits campaign can have an impact beyond construction? After all, the issue of unsuitable PPE is something that affects many sectors, from sports and motorcycling to oil and gas and other major industries. Where would you like the campaign to go? I would like it to be taken for granted that PPE is provided in appropriate sizes and design for people and that it's not simply, well, this is what we always supply. This has been the norm. So I would like that to be part of the, we use the word culture a lot, um, the underpinning process and management. As part of our management, we have a source of PPE that will fit and we acknowledge that there is PPE that needs to be of a particular design and we need to provide that choice. That's for the employers. We have an industry full of subcontractors and people down that chain. I think it would also be rather like um, the, the HSE rules and the considerate constructors for the main contractor to make sure that his, the subcontractors working on that site are also doing it. So it filters down. I would like some constructive collaboration with BSI to make it clear that to be compliant, this should be provided. I would like it to go wider by showing that our industry is ahead of the game. Um, it would be good to be on the front foot in the right boot <laughs> rather than on the back foot. You know, to, to take action before something serious happens, before we're forced to, and to demonstrate to the wider world. It ties in with something else I feel very strongly about, which is we as an industry tend to talk to ourselves. I want to be speaking in unexpected places. So wouldn't it be good to share a demonstration of how we recognise this as an industry? This is where we've got to in improving it. This is how we found it's worked. These are, these are some of the issues we identified, which is the chain of um, authority and the economics. But we'd like to share that out there by saying that we've actually done it. And I think that would help us in also telling a better story about our industry to a bigger audience. Thank you, Sandy. We really hope the campaign will be a great success and will achieve its aims. And best of luck during your presidential year. You can read our exclusive interview with Sandy Rees-Jones online at constructionmanagement.co.uk, where you can also find more information about the PPE That Fits campaign and a recent roundtable hosted with CIOB people with construction women who are as passionate as Sandy about this issue. That's all from me. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Christina. When I first began reporting on Building Information Modelling, or BIM, more than 20 years ago now, everyone seemed happy enough for the BIM model to have your basic three dimensions, length, width and height. Since then, BIM has undergone dimension inflation at a rate similar to this year's consumer price index. 
My colleague Nicky Roger is here to provide clarity on what these new dimensions mean. Welcome to 21CC's Jargon Buster, where we tackle an acronym or slang related to construction and its modernisation. I'm Nikki Roger, Community Editor of Construction Management, and this month we're jumping into dimensions. Dimensions of BIM, that is. Let's start with an easy one, 4D BIM. BIM that includes the three physical dimensions plus time. Time here means scheduling or the construction programme. 4D is widely used now, allowing project teams to work out the most efficient and safe way to build a project. Next up, naturally, is 5D BIM, which layers in cost information. Stepping up to 6D BIM, it's commonly accepted that this adds facilities management information. But here the lack of clarity starts. Shouldn't 5D BIM embrace the capital and operational cost? 7D BIM brings in sustainability. If 4D BIM is cost, 7D BIM is carbon. Of course, the carbon footprint of construction is different to the carbon footprint of the operation of an asset over 30 years. 7.5D BIM, anyone? For those who feel unsafe with an indivisible number, yes, you guessed it, there's 8D BIM. This brings in health and safety. There are some in the industry already using 9D, 10D and 11D BIM terms, but there's considerably less agreement on what those mean or whether they're even necessary. Indeed, last month BIM Plus published an opinion piece that decried the very notion of dimensions of BIM. Our advice? If someone starts talking to you about BIM beyond 5D, challenge them politely on their definitions to make sure they match yours. If there's a bit of industry jargon or an acronym that you'd like 21cc to tackle, drop us a line at 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks, Nikki. Now, a few weeks ago, Construction Management magazine was invited to attend a roundtable focused on ESG. It was organised by Cohesive and supported by the CIOB and Carbon and Innovation-focused Working Group Zero. Highlights of that roundtable will feature in the September issue of Construction Management. But for those who can't wait until then... BIM Plus editor Justin Stanton spoke to roundtable organiser and chair Dave Philp. He's the chief value officer at Cohesive. He's a fellow of the CIOB and chair of the CIOB's Innovation Advisory Group. Over to you, Justin. Dave, why did Cohesive host this roundtable? One of the key things for us is understanding our customers and really understanding their real-world challenges. And I think for us, it's how we respond to those challenges as well. So it's crucially important and that's one of the reasons we actually not just done this round table, but we set up a value office and a value lab as well. And one of the things we'd seen you know, coming through is, you know, real clients think about economic performance, how to maximise the life of their assets, operational reliability and availability. They've all been key themes we've saw coming through the lab. But probably one of the ones that's been most consistent has been carbon reduction. And that journey to net zero, we wanted to use the roundtable to pull on the thread and really understand what customers meant by this. You know, was it purely a carbon question or was it a much more wider thing about environment, social and governments, you know, the, the, the new acronym, 
of ESG. So we really wanted to understand that as well. We also wanted to understand, you know, what did that mean in terms of the overall value chain and their footprint? Or if you want to put a more simply put way, we wanted to, you know, create that boardroom level conversation about our planet and how the built environment is playing part. What about your role with the CIOB and how that plays into the roundtable? It was supported by both uh, Chartership Building and uh, Zero Construct. And I'm lucky enough to uh, chair the Innovation Working Group, which also looks in terms of digital and asset affair. And I think one of the golden threads right way through the CIB is actually how we do things much more sustainability. And we're lucky on the day we had Eddie Tuttle there. And, you know, Eddie highlighted that need for ESG to be top of the agenda and also for professional institutes to think about it as well as academia. But from my point of view, it, it was a really opportunity, you know, what things can we do as an advisor group that are going to create, if you like, concentrate to create, if you like, really effective change within industry. The debate started with Paul Morell's 2010 low carbon report for the government. Paul was appointed as the government's first chief construction advisor. If you look back at 2009, you know, Paul's brief then was to champion a much more coordinated approach to affordable, sustainable construction. And if you kind of look back to those years, you know, the, the, the byline to some extent was cash is king. And if cash is king, then your carbon has to be queen. We started uh, the roundtable looking back, you know, over a decade where Paul introduced, you know, the whole carbon report and the plan for the UK. Started to include a set of recommendations, actually how we could support a low carbon agenda for a built environment. And you think some of those, if you like, the interventions actually kick-started such things as the so-called mandate for building information modelling. But if you look back, again, you know, speaking to Paul on the day, you know, the exam question set in 2010, is construction fit for purpose? And that purpose was especially regarding low carbon transition and what that looked like. Paul highlighted on the day as well, in the case of BIM, we were had a very clear, if you like, call to action. And I think that call to action very much stimulated the market, but also with a very clear value proposition and adoption deadline within there as well. One of the key messages that came out, did we do the same in terms of carbon? You know, was it a simple message and a simple deadline? Probably not so much of there. And I think one of the big things that came out, we really need to create a more significant and compelling value na narrative for industry that is relatable. I think Paul emphasised that need for, you know, a low carbon value proposition that everyone can understand all these different actors and actresses from our built environment. Where are we now from a public sector perspective? Paul Dodd, who's Head of Infrastructure Technology at the Scottish Future Trust, talked about, if anything, that need to improve measurement. You know, if we're going to improve something, we need to be good at baselining measure, especially from an operational perspective, and especially putting a focus on performance metrics. And Paul emphasised that need for a national metrics library for series about measuring the different aspects of our built environment, being able to do it consistently, and look at things such as social impact, life carbon so we can let not just benchmark but learn and enhance asset performance as well i think as well you know when we spoke with paul it's probably a timely reminder that our, you know our current built environment and the performance in the built environment is is crucial we can either be a break in terms of journey or we can accelerate it the value toolkit has a role to play doesn't it it sure does. And as Chief Value Officer, I'm going to say that value is at the heart of everything we do, Justin. So, yeah, it's hugely important. But on the day, we're looking at with Keith Waller, who's the Programme Director for the Construction Innovation Hub. And Keith highlighted that need for clients and indeed policymakers as well to put much more focus on value-based procurement decisions. 
And I think if we're serious about change, it's going beyond that mentality of lowest cost and put the focus on other key issues such as carbon. It was also interesting as well, Keith talked about coupling, if you like, you know, the value toolkit, defining, if you like, our, our value, but how we could also, in terms of that journey to, to net zero, think about the role in terms of platforms and modern methods of construction. So by coupling, if you like, value-based decisions, advanced manufacture, we can start to deliver a faster path to net zero. The Donut Economics report uh, on a circular economy in the built environment was also part of the debate, wasn't it? It's a must-read book. It's by the Oxford economist uh, Kate uh, Raworth. It's much more of a than a book. It's all kind of a manual. And the donut itself consists of, if you could see me drawing my hands here, Justin, it's two concentric rings. You've got a social foundation that ensures basically no one's left falling short of life's essentials. And you've got your outer ring, which is the ecological ceiling that ensures that humanity doesn't collectively overshoot the planetary boundaries, as we often do. How do we protect Earth's, if you like, life-supporting systems? Really simple, elegant concept. You know, everything should sit within that Goldilocks within there as well. And we explored that on the day in terms of how that fits into a circular built environment economy. And we had Melissa Zanko, uh, for those that don't know Melissa, she's the Director of Programmes at the Institute of Civil Engineering. And we discussed the report that she had led on our shared understanding of the circular economy in the built environment. I think that tied in nicely with that donut economics approach because it unites industry for a sustainable future, but it's one where we live within our planet's capacity to provide resources and handle waste. And Melissa explained on the day how it sets out why all sectors and disciplines, we've got to work together to enable that circular economy and built environment. We can't do it in splendid isolation. It is a global effort and we need a common goal within our built environment that's going to bring people together, but also to coordinate action. It puts those circular principles at the heart of how we design, manage and build, not just our new, but existing assets and infrastructure. It's got a significant impact on addressing the sort of global systemic changes, how we achieve net zero emissions, climate resilience, protect biodiversity, which I think is often missing our natural capital, and how it enables social equity as well. And again, it's quite frightening. We've got nine planetary boundaries that we need to measure. Kind of goes back to what Paul Dodd was saying. And we need common methods for measuring how we can improve our responses to these challenges. So what's the key takeaway then? I think if anything came out of that call for action is that need to unite industry to create a clear line of sight between planetary impact and what we do in our built environment from new investments, but also in terms of not just individual projects and programmes, but how that fits in that wider systems of systems. But probably one of the big things we have to do, especially when you look back to you know 2010, we never looked at the behaviours and we kind of forget that despite these technologies and policies, we've never really made the lifestyle choices in our sector. And I think I'm very clear as well that this is really our last chance to enhance what we're doing. And I think, you know, we all agreed that, you know, our built environment, you know, it's got that opportunity to enhance for society, our natural capital and our planet. Just really honoured to actually host it as well. Please get in contact us with ourselves as to how we can help you. We think we're where innovation actually meets expertise, especially around about ESG. We're one of the world's leading systems integrators and implementers of digital solutions. We're dedicated to supporting built environment vision, especially in terms of that low carbon transition. And the big part for us is about empowering customers. And we talk about value in terms of a value lab and how we combine best practice. And again, it's about digital transformation. For us, it's all enterprise assets management. But one of the big things that we think we do that sets us apart is we weave it together with organizational change management. 
read the article when it comes out in Construction Manager magazine. Thanks very much, Dave. Thank you, Justin. And thanks to our sponsor, Cohesive. As Dave Philp said, look out for the September issue of Construction Management magazine for more on this interesting discussion. That brings us to the end of the second episode of 21CC. We hope you found it interesting and useful. Tune in next time. We'll be talking to women crane drivers, exploring the future of robotics on construction sites, and we'll be asking, what will it be like to live in Saudi Arabia's The Line? If you liked the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. You can contact us by email on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks for listening.